he wraps up this personal handbook with extra insights to it. In verse 31 of chapter 22, he says this, Therefore, you shall keep commandments, my commandments, and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So in these couple of verses, there's the bookend yet again, and we saw this dozens of times in the previous chapters where God says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. He reminds them time and time again of his relationship with them in this covenant relationship. They're not Canaanites. They're not Egyptians. They're not the dynasties of the Far East or the you know, dramatic roaming people groups of Central Asia at this time. They are the Jews. They are Israelites. And God promised to make a nation from their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he has kept his word, and they are a nation, and they're in a covenant. And in these progressive covenants that God gave, he gave them this covenant as a nation, never proceeding nor following, because the gospel is the new covenant to all people. But they were entrusted with preparing the way for the good news to come to all people, and we understand that. And as we've been going through Leviticus, we've seen that many of the principles of this covenant, what we call the Mosaic Covenant, apply quite clearly for the church in the new covenant and the everlasting covenant, which the church is. There's no other covenants that are coming. The church, the church age, Jesus rising from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father, sending the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. This is the new covenant. This is the everlasting covenant. And this is the covenant we're writing until Jesus Christ fulfills his promises, many of them, macro promise to return and establish his kingdom. So that's us. We're the church. We're made of all people of all ethnicities and backgrounds. And that's who we are today on this 5th of September, 2020, in this unusual year under these unusual circumstances. But as he says, I am the Lord to them. And he says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. We can say that certainly Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, that we often say that Egypt is a type of the world and Pharaoh was a type of Satan and that Moses is a media of a type of a deliverer that Jesus would, would bring. So when we think of the slavery of the Jews in Egypt that God delivered them from, we're told in the New Testament that he who sins is a slave to sin, but Jesus sets us free from sin. So the, the physical understanding of being a slave, being in bondage to slavery, being in Egypt, and being under Pharaoh, that's a, an unholy trinity triune example of before we give our life to Christ, how we're in bondage to sin how we're in bondage to the devil, and we're slaves to sin, and we're in the world system. And when Christ, when we ask Christ into our life, and we're born again of the Spirit, we pass from death to life. We pass from being under Pharaoh and under Egypt and a slave to sin to being under Christ, to being of the kingdom, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So we're now sanctified and set apart and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So there's very much a typology for the Israelites with their deliverance from Egypt that it is for believers in Christ from the youngest to the oldest when we give our life to Christ. Theirs was physical. Ours is physical, spiritual, and eternal. We have this deliverance. So again, as we've done in Leviticus, we want to look at these few verses and think about them as it would apply to the church. Because contextually, we understand historically how they apply to Israel. 
But we want to look at them and how they apply to the church because, again, in the New Testament, we're told that all that happened here are written, these things are written for our admonition and our applications. And so the Lord says here in verse 32, this profound statement in the covenant relationship. So the application tonight would not apply to a non-believer of any sort. This application applies to those who confess Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you don't, you're welcome to tonight. But you need to come into the covenant. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again through faith in Jesus. And he says in this background, you shall not profane my holy name. I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. If we're looking for a macro title on this text, it could be hallowed be your name. Hallowed, holy, set apart is your name. And as he's wrapping up this, all this instruction manual, he brings this to this key thought, this key concept that they need to know and they need to understand in their covenant relationship. They are separate. They are a special people. They're his own special treasure. They're in a covenant relationship. And they're not going to be, we saw this a couple weeks ago, but they're not going to do the things the Egyptians did. They're not going to do the things the Canaanites did. They are set apart through this covenant and this relationship, even as believers in Christ are set apart. We're warned in the New Testament not to count the blood of the covenant of Jesus Christ a common thing that we would trample the Son of God underfoot again, as if we'd re-crucify Jesus. A clear understanding of that concept that was being communicated in Hebrews was when Paul had been falsely accused, the apostle, that when he gave the gospel of grace, that he was accused of lowering God's standards. He was accused of making God unholy, that somehow by inviting the non-Jewish people to come to Christ, that he was lowering God's character. Because God is light morally, and him is no darkness at all morally. He's the father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. And so there in Romans chapter 6, since we're saved by grace, he said, because we're saved by grace, what then should we sin all the more that grace would abound? That was the false accusation against him. People were saying his detractors, Paul preaches that we're saved by grace, so there's no need for holiness. There's no need to live a godly life, a sanctified life. And Paul said nothing could be further from the truth. Because there in Romans 6, he explained when you're water baptized, it represents death to the old man or woman, and coming out of the water, the new life that we have in Christ. Christ didn't die for our sins to leave us in bondage to sin. He isn't the way, the truth, and the life to leave us walking in darkness, falsehood, and death. And with that in mind, we look at this passage tonight with the concept, hallowed be your name. Because the name of the Lord is to be hallowed. He is the Lord. Remember, he's given him his new name, a fuller understanding, Yahweh the Lord, not El Shaddai, God Almighty, which is what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had. He's given a further revelation, Yahweh, the Lord. And for 1,500 years, when they, the scribes did their stuff, they, every time they wrote the name of the Lord, they did all sorts of things to bring reverence to themselves for what they were doing in recognizing his very name. In fact, it's been pointed out that we don't completely understand the correct pronunciation because some people say Jehovah, some people say Yahweh, but they wouldn't even say his name, the Lord. That's how hallowed his name was among the people, that way. So the first thing we see as we think about the church and being the body of Christ is you shall not profane my name. Now, the idea behind the, the, the thought process here, profane, this word in the Hebrew means to break my name, 
in a sense, wound my name, or we could say discredit my name. But wound is a really strong word, like to wound the name. When our kids were growing up, when we lived in Costa Mesa there between 2000 and 2010, and they went to Calvary Chapel schools, MCA, and they all went through there. About that time, Disney released the original cartoon movie of Mulan. And many of you have seen that movie, Mulan. And there's a, there's a scene in Mulan where the one person says to Mulan, you disgrace the Fa family. And we, we, we kind of had a running joke with our family on this one that when our kids were younger, we'd say like, if they did something out of line or wrong or got in trouble, because of course they did get in trouble, um, that's not their mom's genetic code, that's their father's genetic code working through them in school. But they got in co- trouble for various things at various times. And it'd be like, they'd all know we're thinking like, you disgrace the Fa family. Like you bring dishonor to the family. And of course, in the Asian culture, that is very powerful and very profound. And uh, having been to Japan many times and understand the Japanese culture, how they look upon the name, the legacy of the name, and even in the movie of Mulan, it was all about the deceased ancestors that they worship, which of course many Eastern religions do, that you have this legacy of ancestors that you would worship, and when you do dishonorable things, you disgrace the legacy of that name. You wound the name. So what the Lord is saying here contextually to Israel is like, you shall not profane my name. You aren't gonna, you're not going to use my name in such a way that you lower its value as God of heaven, Lord of heaven, God of wonders, Lord of heaven and earth. You're, you're not going to use my name. And of course, we saw in the Ten Commandments, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. So of course, you're not going to say, you know, curse the Lord. You're not going to use his name in vain. Growing up, uh, going to church in the Catholic Church, I knew very well you don't use the Lord's name in vain, although it seemed like just about everyone around me did use the Lord's name in vain when they're upset or frustrated. But I certainly knew every time I was a naughty little boy, if I wanted to use the Lord's name in vain, I was being naughty and being rebellious. I was profaning the name of the Lord. Now, when a non-believer you work with on a construction site or a non-believer in the cubicle next to you or the non-believer on flying with you to a business meeting uses the Lord's name in vain, if they're not a person of covenant and they're a non-believer, that's what they choose to do, and they'll give an account for it. They're, he's being blasphemed by them. But it's definitely not for us to use the Lord's name in vain. It's to hallow his name. You shall not profane my name in your words. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. But really, when you compare their lifestyle and what God had for them in the promised land and being set apart, they were not to profane his name in how they conducted themselves and how they carried themselves what they did or didn't do. And even as we wrap up this part of Leviticus, where God contrasted what he expected of them in holiness and being set apart to the unholy practices of the Canaanites, he's saying, you're, you're not that way. Your friend at school, school, he'll steal and cheat and lie. You don't cheat, steal, and lie at school. Your friend at work will be unfaithful to his spouse. You are not unfaithful to your spouse. The whole idea is that we don't profane his name and we don't bring a wound to his name And in the New Testament, this is brought clear with the whole idea that when it talks about being pastors and leaders, that they are what? They have a good reputation, and they're above reproach. So reproach is a word that we're more familiar with as opposed to profaning or in contrast to profaning the name of the Lord. But the idea is to bring a reproach. You disgrace the Fall family. You bring a reproach upon the ministry. You bring a a disgrace to your business, you know, like so— when Lehman Brothers collapsed in 2008, it brought disgrace to all the people that worked for the corporation, the company, because of the corruption at the top. 
This is the idea that we have in mind when the Lord says to his people of covenant, you shall not profane my name. It's a powerful concept that we realize when we in the name of Christ, and people know that, and they should know that, how we carry ourselves with character and our conduct, and how we act, and how probably more often than not, how we react in the things we choose to do in reaction or don't choose to do in reaction. I mentioned Tuesday night, Vernon Jones Jr., the Democrat assemblyman from Georgia who spoke at the RNC. He's African-American and incredibly intelligent politician. And what he shared was just so truthful and insightful for like five minutes. And he's been railed by many people of his ethnicity, but supported by many people of his ethnicity as well. But at any rate, when he was leaving the Republican convention on Thursday night, a week and a half ago, he was accosted by a a paid-for group of agitators, paid protesters sent there to create havoc and disruption and and chaos and intimidate and bully people. And you can video, you can find the video, it's all over there. But I watched this man and his wife leaving the White House as guests of the president, an African-American man, a current politician from the state of Georgia, And I watched the venom that people spewed at him. And it's there. I mean, it's unfiltered. It's hard to watch. And how he carried himself with class and dignity. He never, he completely ignored people screaming in his face, accusing him of betraying his ethnicity. He never, he never flinched. He never flinched. He spoke with his wife. He had about 20 policemen with bikes trying to build a parameter to keep him safe from being assaulted. Rand Paul the same night said that he feared for his life, him and his wife, when they did the same thing to him. It's those moments that really reveal what we're made of, whether we glorify the name of the Lord or we profane the name of the Lord, how we respond. And then I got me thinking about something else I saw recently. Many of you know who Nick Sandman is. He's the Catholic high school student from Covington High School in Kentucky who was humiliated, degraded, and cancel-cultured about a year and a half ago by all the mainstream media. He was in Washington, D.C. with his students, 600 student body, 600 boys, all Catholic school. And he was there in Washington, D.C. at a pro-life march defending the right, the sanctity of life. And from that, now think of all, how many of our teenagers ever got on a bus to go to D.C. to stand for pro-life? How many of you ever stood out front somewhere for pro-life? How many of you really put our... You know, it's easy to protest things when it's politically correct. It's harder to protest things that are right when they're not politically correct. And this teenage boy got on a bus with his classmates and went to Washington, D.C. and exercised his freedom of speech and his faith there in the Capitol area. He was looking forward to going to Lincoln Memorial because Lincoln, of course, is from Kentucky. He's a legend for the state of Kentucky. And so he went, and as you know, Most of you know, after he was in the March for Life, he was very excited because President Trump is the most pro-life president in the history of all presidents. That's an established fact. That's not opinion. That's just objective fact. So he got himself a Make America Great hat, and he went to the Washington, excuse me, the Lincoln Memorial, and there paid protesters, agitators were there, and they got in his face. This This kid's a high school kid. Think of your kids, like Liam right here. You know, he's a high school kid, and he's got an adult male in his space, in a threatening way, trying to intimidate him. 
Of course, it all went public. You know, he, he, everyone said he had a smirk. You know, he, he's confessed he was scared to death, which most high school men would be when a young men would be when a, a paid agitator is in your face trying to provoke you. Something very interesting he said recently. Now, of course, he won all the lawsuits by exercising self-control. But there is a Catholic believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He just put his arms behind his back, and he maintained his composure, and he had two thoughts. Thought number one is, I'm going to do nothing to agitate this man, for I fear this man to hurt me. Thought number two is the most important one that relates to our text tonight. He said he learned from a family member that you never do anything to disgrace your family, your school, and your community. And when he took that abuse, what strengthened him was his personal convictions that you never do anything to disgrace your family, your school, and your community. We've all seen the clip. Fear of a dangerous man in his mind and not wanting to disgrace or dishonor his family, his school, and his community. That's the idea that you will not profane my name, that you keep your composure, that we keep our composure. Now, never mind, he's already won two $250 million lawsuits. He's won a half billion by keeping his composure. He's also on deck to get another $900 million from lawsuits against ABC, CBS, NBC, and others. That's just the CNN and the Washington Post suits that he won. So, note to all young people, exercise self-control. You might have a lawsuit that will gain you <laughs> a lifetime uh, trust. I'm being facetious on that one. But what if, let's think this through, what if he did respond negatively? What if he had yelled back like some of his classmates did? What if he had retaliated physically? What would the storyline be now? Would he be speaking at the RNC? Would he have won those lawsuits? You know, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. And a man who controls his spirit, a woman who controls her spirit, is better than one who takes a city. Not profaning the name of the Lord is everyday experiences where we keep our composure, we keep our wits, and remember that we are the salt of the world, that we are the light of the world, and that we represent much more than just ourselves, just our families, just our schools, and just our community. We represent the Lord. We represent the coming kingdom, and how we carry ourselves in those cruxing moments will reveal what's really in us, and it will reveal the adjustments we need to make. But again, in the last two weeks, Looking at Vernon Jones Jr., Assemblyman Vernon Jones, and the situation with Nick, I just, it's humbling to me. It's humbling to me and reminds me that with whatever's left of my journey, I've got to exercise self-control. When things are unraveling around us and people are just screaming with cancel culture, we have to keep our composure and not profane the name of the Lord. Jesus did not yell and shout in the streets. We are told prophetically from the book of Isaiah, and a bruised reed he won't break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. But he did not shout in the streets, and you never see Jesus 
yelling in anyone's face in the gospel records because Isaiah the prophet tells us he wouldn't and we know he didn't. Now more than ever, we got to keep our composure. Do what's right. Speak for what's right. Speak for what's true. But we can't be baited to profaning the Lord. Now, the second thing we see is I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. Hallowed is revered, respected. The word is associated with holiness, set apart in his glory. Holiness is a funny word because it's really funny, peculiar, and that it's hard for us to understand holy because holy is the nature and the character of God. So when we think of someone being holy, we think more like the human idea of pious, like a monk going on a pilgrimage somewhere, you know, sacrificing something. So most of us, we say holy, we kind of get this idea of something that we can't attain to. But holiness really is who we are the moment we give our life to Christ. Holiness is who he is in his character and nature. And being born of the spirit, we now have the the new nature in us and the capacity to be transformed by the new nature, the Holy Spirit working in us to produce and make us more like Jesus Christ in all of our human experiences and day-to-day living that becomes days, weeks, months, and years. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the idea of us being holy is reaffirmed the New Testament. Because even as the Lord says, be holy for I am holy in Leviticus, so too we're told in First Peter, be holy for I am holy. And the context is really about being sanctified and set apart, which we'll get to in a minute. But we need to understand that God is holy, that he's to be revered. He is holy. And he's set apart. And there's a reason Paul said, knowing that we almost appear before the judgment seat of Christ, We persuade men knowing the terror of the Lord. There is an awe with the Lord that we often forget. Moses is the murdering bush. He's like, what is it? And the Lord says, take off your sandals for you stand on holy ground. We know when God came to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai and the cloud descended, he says, no one comes near it, no one touches it. And I think in 2020 Christian culture in America, we have reaped the fruit of decades of an unholiness Christianity in America. I think we've really sown and reaped something whereby which we do have a lot of churchgoers who miss the point that we are sanctified and saved and set apart. And that, as I originally shared, a neighbor said to me, I just pictured Jesus being this lovey-dovey, cuddly person. I'm like, that is correct, but, you know, I did drop the truth bomb on him. I said, you need to picture him totally bloody and beaten to the point you can't even recognize him. Because that's just as much to Jesus who died for you as to Jesus who's going to lead you and guide you and comfort you. We need to see Jesus bloodied and beaten beyond recognition, which is exactly what Isaiah the prophet said would be. When Jesus was on that cross, he was so marred, there was nothing attractive about him, and there was nothing that would even allow you to recognize him. Beaten so badly that he was unrecognizable. That, that's how it would be your name. That's the distinction of holiness and sin. That Jesus who is holy, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. The holiness is Jesus with his perfect life, forgiving the woman caught in adultery, all the things that you see, let the children come to me, all those wonderful stories, walking on water, pulling Peter out of the water, all those things. That's Jesus in his sinless life. But Jesus, bloody and beaten, where you can't recognize him, that's Jesus bearing the wrath of God for our sins where we cannot recognize him. 
I will be hallowed among my people. We're not, the purpose of the gospel and the purpose of pastors isn't to peddle a cheap grace like Paul warned about to the Thessalonians. We're not as many others as peddling the word of God. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, the so in our covenant, the new covenant, the disciples specifically asked Jesus, how do we pray? And you know the prayer. When you pray, pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing that all believers in Christ are to understand in the concept of their relationship with God through faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, is hallowed be your name. It's the fulfillment of this verse. I will be hallowed among my people, the children of Israel. And when Jesus is teaching disciples, hallowed be your name, Jesus is saying, my father will be hallowed among my church. Because every time you pray, you pray in this manner. The right perspective that God is on the throne, he's in heaven, and his name is to be hallowed. And hallowed be your name. And when you get the right perspective that it's God of the universe, billions of galaxies and billions of stars, hallowed be your name, God of wonders, then we have our right standing before the Lord of abundance gratitude. We have the right perspective from the Lord. It's about his kingdom and his work being done in and through our lives, not us trying to force or manipulate what we think is right on God to do things the way we think he should. That's why thy will be done is the smartest prayer, truly the smartest prayer. But he'll be hallowed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. That is the whole purpose of our life. So when God says here, I will be hallowed among my children Israel, we can simply say, you know what, for the church, God says I will be hallowed among my children, the church, my sons and daughters adopted into my kingdom. My sons and daughters who are joint heirs with my son, Jesus, for the whole kingdom. That my sons and daughters, you can call me Abba Father because I've adopted them fully with all the blessings into the family trust and the family estate. I will be hallowed by my children, the church. By the way, in the last days, my children who will prophesy and see visions and speak great things before the great and notable day of the Lord. I will be hallowed by my children. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. The whole purpose of our life is not what we think God's going to do for us to make our life safe and smart and better and easier. The whole purpose of our life is to be saved and to serve. And to fulfill the very purposes by which we were born into the world and born again by his spirit. So it's never about me getting my kingdom done in heaven. It's about me being still and hearing the voice of what it is that God wants to do in my life. This brief vapor of a life in this generation we live in that he wants to accomplish before it's almost done. And there is a sobering reality approaching 60 that just keeps coming at me time and time again. Because 40 to 60 was when we moved to Orange County. And I'm, I'm knocking on the door of 60. I'm like right there. And all that to go is when we came to Orange County, I was 40. And now I'm 60. That timeline, that's not that much time. So all I have to do, I have a very simple measuring rod because it's not confused by living in the same city for 50 years. We moved to Costa Mesa when I was 40. And we lived 10 years in Costa Mesa, now 10 years in Huntington Beach. It's really easy. When I went on staff with Pastor Chuck with the suit up front, with all the other pastors ready to pray, that's when I was 40. And now, here in the year of COVID, I'm moving in on 60 very soon. 
I take the same number, boom, 80. And that's presuming I even get to see 80. And watching the frailty of my father-in-law and my father in the early 90s, it's so humbling. Everything about our future on earth should humble us with our earthly bodies and our human wit and wisdom. And it should humble us to where we're totally dependent upon the Lord, we're hallowing his name, and we exist for one purpose, to see his kingdom done in our life as best as we can discern it, and then we're gone. And that's it. And we want our life to have significance and meaning. Our life will have significance and meaning if we hallow his name and we acknowledge him as Lord of all and we are seeking his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that's our pursuit every day. Now, the vast majority of books in Christendom in America are all about what God can do for you and you can feel better about yourself, whatever you want to do. That worldview is rubbish, and it won't stand the test of fire before the throne of Christ. It's rubbish. The real worldview that only matters, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth it is in heaven. And most of you get this, but in case you don't, we need to get it. We need to get it, and we need to really, you know, COVID has given clarity of purpose for a lot of people. What are we living for? Even before service, talking with Chris Gonzalez about you know, is Gonzo playing water polo right now, Aiden? And he said, well, he's doing this and he's doing that. Everything's just so, it's like a future's been ripped. You know, all those kids I poured into with the junior surf team, they all had dreams of being on the pro tour. Many of them are going to be rookies this year on the pro tour. There's no pro tour. There's, I don't even know if they're getting checks anymore. The industry's just, I have no idea what's going on. Who knows when there is a pro tour? And if there is a pro tour, how many events are really there? And how much money's there? It'll be far less. I mean, next year the Shocker's coming for all the major league sports, right? Like, can you imagine the, the, the payroll cuts for all these athletes? So there's something very sobering about COVID-19 that has caused us, hopefully, to reevaluate our lives, what we're living for. And all things work together for good to those who love God. And if COVID-19 has sharpened our focus and cleared us from distractions and made it very clear what we're living for, what we're all about, then it's done a great work and a great purpose because I personally believe that COVID-19 is a divider between mediocrity and greatness with the kingdom of God. I believe it's a divider between ambiguity and absolute truth. And even as everything's become so polarized in our nation of worldviews, so too the church has become very polarized. Either you're all in with the truth or you're all down the river with falsehood and compromise and deceit. The middle ground is gone. We're either all in for Christ or we're just doing some kind of religious thing that leaves us impotent for life and doomed and probably damned for eternity. So this is from the Lord. This whole thing is from the Lord, ultimately, to separate. For God says in those last days, he'll shake things. And the only things, the things that stand and remain, those are the things. But things that are shaking and fall away, they're like Gideon's men. Hey, This is a chance for everyone to bail out that wants to play church, what we're going through, and probably what we're headed toward at some point. So it's just a sifting. Is anyone afraid? You can go home, Gideon's men. And then they drink water this way. They can go home and they drink water that way. Many are called, but few are chosen. And narrow is the way that leads to life, and few go thereby. So enter by the narrow gate, and broad and wide is the path that leads to destruction. Hallowed be his name, which brings us to the final thing. It says here in uh, verse 32 as well, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
and the idea of being sanctified, of course, is set apart. Most of you would understand that. Consecrated, set apart. And the word for sanctification in the Old Testament is pretty much one word used the, the numerous times it's used in the Old Testament. It has clearly being set apart. And again, in the New Testament, this whole concept that he had for the children of Israel comes forth for the church because he talks about sanctification quite a bit for the church. Jesus, on the, before going to the cross, in praying for the disciples, he said in chapter 17 of John concerning the disciples that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is John 17 and 16, if you want to note it. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Praying to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by truth. So when we think about the New Testament application of being sanctified, how are we sanctified is answered right there. We're sanctified by truth. God's word, Jesus praying for us, says to sanctify us by the truth. We're sanctified from Genesis to Revelation as we read the word. We're told in Ephesians that um, we're sanctified by the word as well. So God's word, as we come out and we read two chapters on Tuesday night or, you know, the text tonight, summarizing that every time we're taking the word, we're listening to Bible studies on K-Wave or podcasts or whatever, and every time we're taking the word, we're being sanctified. God's word sets us apart because God's word isn't going to push us toward the world and compromise. God's word is going to consecrate us and separate us for conviction and commitment to fulfill our calling. It's going to sharpen us, not dull us. Believers get dull when they drift from his word. But believers get sharper when they press into his word. And Jesus said to the Father, sanctify them by your word, which is truth. And I've mentioned this many times this year. There's so much false, there's so many false narratives out there on any variety of topics. It's so hard to know what is true. It is just so, it's, it's, it's insane. It's exasperating to know it's true. And as you know, even just less than 10 days ago, the CDC said, you know, it's really only 6% COVID-related deaths out of the total number. I'm like, that just passed like it was, no, I'm like, wait a second, you're saying that for the last five months, all we've been told, these death totals, you're saying it's only 6% of that is from COVID? And no one even blinks. You revised the numbers by, out of 100 people you said died of COVID, only six died from COVID? And you just put that on page three on a Tuesday or something? Our lives are completely turned upside down because of these numbers? I can't fight a Russia because of these numbers? And now you're telling me that you fudged these numbers for five months? It's really only six out of 100, not 100 out of 100? I mean, there's so many false narratives with all these agendas. It's like, who can we believe? Well, I'll tell you, you can believe the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. There's no shadow of turning with the Father of lights, and that's why his name is hallowed. And he sanctifies us by his word. We can get lost in the woods of the human experience and the opinions of men. We will never, ever get lost on the trail of Jesus Christ and his words of truth. Because as the psalmist said, your word's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I've sanctified your word in my heart. Psalm 119. So we're never going to get lost. So of all the craziness that we've faced, the stability in this craziness is God's word. Amen? And all the craziness we're probably still going to face, the stability is going to be God's word. Amen? We just have to, it's, it's the word that sanctifies us. But we're also told that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. 
He sets us apart. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit comes into us. Literally, God's Spirit indwells us, and he sets us apart. It's, your, it's like when you get, you're sworn in as a citizen to a new country, and they throw you in like you're set apart. You're sworn in with the Holy Spirit. And in, and in the sanctification process, Paul the Apostle spoke to the Corinthian church, and he said this about the sanctification. He said, do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now think back to what we just said about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. It's a kingdom. Well, the Corinthian church is very carnal, very sinful, very worldly, divisive, catty, carnal. Just carnal. But they were saved. You need to understand that. Positionally, they had righteousness. Practically, they didn't. And he said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So the unrighteous, well, what is the unrighteous? Do not be deceived. Well, okay, there's a warning about being deceived. A warning about deception of what's righteous or not righteous. Neither fornicators, sexual morality, idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Revilers, wow, how's that for 2020, revilers? There's a lot of revilers out there in 2020. You notice that one? And they're reviling. They are revilers. They are reviling in people's faces everything good, decent, just, virtuous, and praiseworthy. Mm. Nor extortioners. Who knows what corruption is going on behind the scenes that make people do things that they're doing right now and betray and do these things they're doing? Who even knows? Extortioners. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the word of God says. Your word's truth. Sanctify them by your truth. So he's writing to Corinthians, hey, don't be deceived. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, set apart, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. So our sanctification that takes us away from carnal living and lustful living and destructive patterns of living that wreck our lives and hinder the kingdom of God in our life, the Spirit of God sanctifies us and takes us from that. So that's, that's not us. So the Word sanctifies us, the Spirit of God sanctifies us, and Paul, the, the Apostle, saying with the, the Holy Spirit, looking back when we gave our life to Christ, you were like this. That was your life before Christ. But then when you were saved, you were washed, and you were sanctified. You were set apart by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit sets us apart. And so it's a reminder that the key for our growth, the key for our sanctification looking at the words of Jesus praying for us, listening to the words of the Apostle Paul, is that there's a work that he wants to do in our life that we're reminded of tonight that we're to be moving under the leading of the Holy Spirit toward those things we're meant to be in character because God is light and him is no darkness at all. And he's wanting to move us toward these things at all times under any circumstance, but certainly right now for such a time as this. Because we're not trying to be religious we're just trying to be faithful in our relationships with God. We don't lose our way. I mean, you, you think how reverent you are if you're serious about being in special forces. And when my son Luke was interested in being in special forces, he took it so seriously what that would entail. Watching uh, Troy fiddle and his reverence for wanting to be a, a pararescue at the Air Force and even Navy SEAL, the reverence and the respect and the commitment and the calling is so high. It's so high and so honorable. 
And yet, how much honor and what reverence is attainable for us if we are that committed to the kingdom of God and the upper call of God in Christ Jesus? For you can do great things on earth and leave it behind on earth. You can do great things on earth because the kingdom's working in us and we'll take it with us to the kingdom when we step into the kingdom. And that's really our objective. As we conclude this portion of Leviticus, it is so good and so important. As God reminded his people of covenant then, he can remind us tonight as a church that we do not profane his name, that we hallow his name, and he has sanctified us. And it's good to be reminded as we enter the final third of this incredible, life-changing, planet-changing, societal-changing year of 2020.